Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's Friday, June 16th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. What the hell is going on in Congress? Tempting to say, oh, nothing. What a sophisticated take that is. How about nothing good elevating the sophistication level? Well, there is something going on, but there are also some things not going on, and that is the dog that didn't bark, or in this case, maybe the stove that didn't spark, but then it actually caught fire. So the Republicans, a couple weeks ago, took up a measure to stop the ban of gas stoves. They're banning gas stoves? What are you talking about? Asks New Jersey Democrat Frank Pallone. The idea that anyone is coming into American homes to remove gas stoves is ridiculous. If nothing else, that sentiment does give some credibility to the argument of New York Republican Michael Lawler. Now, my colleagues on the other side of the aisle will stand here and say till they're blue in the face that they don't want to ban gas stoves and that it's ridiculous that anyone would dare claim that it's happening. The fact of the matter is there is no plan to confiscate anyone's existing gas stove. Uh, But there certainly is movement to disallow their future installation. In fact, New York State has already passed such a law. But the congressional resolution didn't originally pass. In fact, it couldn't even get to a floor vote. And it's interesting as to why. It's very popular among all the Republicans and, in fact, a bunch of Democrats to say, no, we want our gas stoves. But what happened was, if you remember the debt ceiling debate fiasco deal, there were some Freedom Caucus, breakaway Republicans who didn't want to sign the debt ceiling bill. So those breakaway Republicans have gotten some measure of revenge, or did, by suspending all business in the House. So House Republicans couldn't get their gas stove vote. Then a deal was cut, the hardliners got less hardline on this issue, and we finally got a vote, finally, to pass a ban on a ban of gas stoves. By the way, how will this affect your gas stove? I don't know. I think the whole thing will die in the Senate. A very similar, slightly different tactic played out on another issue that all the Republicans are behind. Pistol grips. Here's Colorado Republican Lauren Boebert, one of the 11 Republican hardliners, talking about the issue. Though it does seem that she's defending the rights of Americans to own other Americans. And now the ATF wants to make the owners of nearly 40 million Americans with firearm stabilizing braces criminals overnight. We literally have disabled veterans wounded in battle that rely on pistol braces to enjoy and responsibly shoot at the range or defend themselves and their homes. 
The reason Bobert and her pistol grip and pals, it is technically a pistol brace, a pistol grip is just part of every pistol. The brace supposedly uh, expands it to work like a rifle. Anyway, they got their vote because Republican leadership once again gave into the demands of the hardliners. And really, what else can House leadership do? They got to placate the Freedom Caucus and give in to the demands if they want to get anything. And one of the things they wanted and that we all needed was a debt ceiling deal. By the way, the pistol brace vote gonna probably fail in the Senate even if it doesn't it's definitely gonna go down to defeat after a veto now let's say the House of Representatives your house the people's house was operating smoothly nothing would really change in terms of laws affecting your lives the two big votes that were the center of closing down the whole house they were message votes they were essentially doomed to fail but in other house news the Republicans got a full head of steam in an attempt to censure Representative Adam Schiff for his handling of Trump Russiagate, you know, steel dossier, crossfire hurricane, all that. But 20 other Republicans couldn't stomach the measure, including the notion that Adam Schiff should be fined $16 million for doing a job they didn't like as chair of a House committee. The measure failed. And finally, we have the move to subpoena the director of the FBI for failure to produce unredacted form FD-1023. I am now going to give a Juneteenth gift to you, a three-day weekend gift to my listening audience, be you Pesca Plus, ad-free, or de facto regular good solid American subscribers. I am not going to bother you with the details of FD-1023. I will let you know when it all gets good. But there's a lot of other items on our national agenda, or maybe just, I don't know, an invitation to go to a barbecue this weekend. So no FD-1023 in your life. The issue that is on the top of almost everyone's mind is Donald Trump's indictment in federal court in Miami. I have sensed an almost unanimity of opinion. I'm not talking about the truth social types, but in your mainstream media, that the case is a slam dunk and that the motivations for the case are good ones. It was brought about solely by Trump's own intransigence, and it more or less represents the government fairly and judiciously bringing charges that will be very, very difficult for any jury to disagree with. Well, guess what? I like to challenge unanimous opinions. So I sought out a friend of mine who happens to be expertly positioned to offer insight. David Oscar Marcus is a top-tier defense lawyer. He practices out of the Miami area. He sees things through the lens of a defense lawyer. You should know. You should also know that he turned down Trump as a client, that David is a registered Democrat, that he's currently representing Hillary Clinton in a lawsuit against Donald Trump. Maybe he didn't know that thing was going on, but yeah, it is. But those are his personal leanings. His professional leanings, on the other hand, are one of we got to stick to principles, no matter who the defendant is. I think it all gives him standing and credibility as you assess his opinion in the federal case. David O. Marcus up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. 
Donald Trump is facing criminal charges in a South Florida federal courthouse. I wanted to go to one of South Florida's greatest legal minds, David Oscar Marcus. He is a criminal defense lawyer. He runs the Southern District of Florida blog. I quite enjoyed his podcast for the defense. Really, he interviews the greatest defense lawyers of all time. And I think he got a bunch of them saying things that I've never heard before. And I could list all the lawyer of the year accolades, but just know Dave is the real deal. I've known him, I don't know, for 30 years. Hey, I'm Mike. impressed. Continue <laughs> to be. Dave, welcome. For the first time, welcome to The Gist. Thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to uh, catching up with my old college buddy. Yeah, so let's do it in the context of Donald Trump. Tell me what you know about this particular venue. You practice there, right? Yeah, it, it's fascinating to me that the special counsel brought the case down here. Um, and, and, you know, juries down in South Florida are different than anywhere else. And and from city to city, right? Like the Miami jury pool is very different from the West Palm Beach jury pool and very different from the Fort Pierce jury pool. So. Eileen Cannon sits in Fort Pierce, the northernmost point of uh, the Southern District of Florida. Many say it's the deep south uh, in Fort Pierce. That's the kind of jury you'd get. Um, yeah, one West, of those so far south, it's north. So far south, it's uh, north. But right. that's what Florida is. But then this is the part of Florida that is the south. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, that that's it, it's interesting to see where she'll actually try the case. Will, will Judge Cannon try it in Fort Pierce, West Palm or Miami? And there's lots of pluses for Donald Trump, no matter where you are in Miami. Um, the, the Cuban population down here backs him almost uh, to a T. So he will have a lot of support um, from a Miami jury, West Palm and, and Fort Pierce the same. So, um, I, you know, I, I think it's a tough venue for, for Jack Smith. He could have brought the case in D.C. without any risk. There was a Supreme Court case that came out this week that said if venue is improper uh, and a case is reversed, you can do the whole thing over again. So I bet Jack Smith is kicking himself after that Supreme Court case came out this week because he could have brought it in D.C. with no risk. Well, does it in a way speak well of him that this is the most logical place because this is where most of the documents and most of the alleged crimes occur? So I know you're a defense lawyer, not out to compliment federal prosecutors too much, but that is my question. Is this really the proper place, if you're going to be honest? I, I think, yes, and that's right. I was just talking about it from a tactical point of view. Correct. Like if he's looking yeah. to win and maybe he's looking to avoid all the criticism, right, if he would have brought it in D.C. But he had a grand jury in D.C. for a year up there meeting. So at the last minute, you know, there there was these reports that it was now meeting in South Florida. I I, I really don't know what changed his mind because it looked like he was going to go in D.C. and then and then switch course. Maybe it was just, uh, you know, we didn't want all the criticism of of a of a D.C. jury in a D.C. case. A lawyer will do everything within his power to fairly, if they're ethical and following the rules, fairly arrange circumstances to give the likelihood of the outcome they prefer to create that. However, there are some cases that are so strong that perhaps a prosecutor would say, well, okay, this isn't the perfect jury, but it's so strong, I don't see how any reasonable jury could find against us. Or maybe they don't do that. Maybe they say, we got to do what we have to do to get the right jury because jury is everything. I, honestly, what do you, th what do you I, think the thought process is? I think most prosecutors, including Jack Smith, go into a case believing they, they're going to win and can't understand how a jury would ever vote against them. Every time I've ever won a case, the prosecutors look stunned. Mm -hmm. I mean, we just had this Andrew Gillum trial in Tallahassee, 
And when you read the indictment in that case, you would be like, there's no chance Andrew Gillum can win this case because people read the indictment and think, oh, that means it's true. But in, an indictment is like a wedding invitation. It doesn't mean that it's there's proof of a marriage. Right. So, right. so in this case, you know, you read the indictment and people are like, oh, my, there's no chance Trump can walk. But trials are are crazy events and chaos. And, and you know, it's going to be tough for the prosecutors um, both to prove up everything in there and to convince 12 people unanimously. Right. They have to get all 12 uh, to vote guilty. So that's going to be tough. Gillum, who ran against DeSantis and lost narrowly for governor, was the mayor of Tallahassee. Did the venue come into play in the outcome of that case where the prosecutors uh, walked away from it thanks to, I guess, the facts, but also the talents you brought to bear? Well, I, you know, it, it's funny because we went into the case wondering what the jury pool would look like up there. I had never been to Tallahassee before. Um, and, and what we found out was jurors to a T loved Andrew Gillum. They loved him. Um, and they 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 looked up to him. And despite the bad press that he had gotten both from other stuff and from this case, jurors still trusted him um, and, and gave him the benefit of the doubt. That's how jurors should be in every case, by the way. Not every defendant gets it. But I, I think he rightfully got the benefit of the doubt. And of course, I don't believe he did any of the things alleged. And I think we proved it. So so jurors... Uh, it, it's interesting in post-trial interviews, what the juror said is we went into the jury room saying we want to help the prosecution. Where's the proof here? And they couldn't find it. So so that was their their way they looked at the case. But this comports with everything in your professional experience. The jurors themselves are extremely important. The, the most important thing, one of the factors in, in state court is you get hours and hours of wadir. The attorney gets to go up and question the jurors find out about them, find out their background. In a federal case, the attorneys generally don't get to ask any questions. The judge asks all the questions and you find out very little about the jurors. And so you're going on the stereotypes on, you know, where what what cultural background you try to find out um, uh, where they're registered to vote. Some judges don't let you do any media research, uh, social media research. So our judge in Tallahassee and Gillum did not let us look up social media profiles while we were picking the jury. That's the first time that ever happened to me. I thought it was crazy. We were going to challenge that, but um, it's unclear. That seems what crazy. I mean, you can hire a jury consultant, right? Right. And that, guy, and that guy can't look up someone who's publicly TikToking? That, <laughs> co correct. And we made that argument to the judge. We said a, a media person in the courtroom could look it up and we're not allowed to. Our jury consultant can't do it. And he, he would not let us. Um, and, and it was wild. But I, I think... Trump's people will be able to. And it's it's you know, you should be able to see who the jurors are, of course, uh, that you're going to have. Right, right. Through legal means, through them putting it out there. If this guy put up Trump lawn sign or Biden lawn sign on his lawn, that's relevant to the justice that you're pursuing, I think. Well, the the one juror that held out against Andrew Gillum in our case, we we looked up her social media after the trial when we found out she was the holdout. And on her Facebook page, it said, Trump is still my president. Um, <laughs> so not the ideal juror for Andrew Gillum. And had we known that during jury selection, of, of course, we would have bounced her. But she was the one holdout against us. Wow, that's so interesting. OK, so the judge has this outsized role in federal cases. How important is the judge? I'll tell you, I've been monitoring the progressive media world and they're really, really worried. How worried should they be? Well, 
I'll take your first question first. The judge is critically important and and is going to make a big difference on pretrial rulings, on evidentiary rulings. Um, and it, you need to have a fair, good judge. Now, I think the criticism of Judge Cannon has been a little unfair, I have to say. Yes, she ruled for Trump in one case and got reversed. But but so what? Judges get reversed all the time. Um, that's a pretty small sample size. Yes. Um, you know, and, and what the progressives are saying is she's going to delay this and everything else. Well, she issued an order this week right after the arraignment saying, hey, you need to get uh, cleared by the classified information uh, procedures. And she she acted on it right away. So I think it's too early to tell how she's going to be. She's a law and order judge. So um, most prosecutors like appearing before her. I can tell you that. What about, and the New York Times just did a big study of this, scant criminal trial experience, total of 14 hours in actual trials. Uh, you know, there, every judge will at one point have 14 hours of trials under his or her belt. How much of a, and let's also caveat this with say, by saying there's a likelihood that you'll be in front of this judge at one point. Is that fair? <laughs> yeah, no, but, uh, you know, I'm... I'm but how, how concerning should that so be? So I think it was 14 days, not 14 hours, but, okay. but still a small, small amount of time. But listen, I think that's a an indictment or a critique of our criminal justice system and not of Judge Cannon. There are very few cases going to trial. As you know, 98% of cases now plead guilty. So, so very few judges have lots of trial experience. Yes, she has very little trial experience. She's a very new judge. She was a Trump appointee. She's young. Um, if we were to get rid of all the judges that have 14 days or fewer of trials, we would uh, have no judges because there's very few. Um, so, but literally, you have to get to the threshold of 14 days before you get to the threshold of 140 or 1400. Exactly. Days. Yeah. Exactly. So, so I, you know, I think it's a good criticism of our system that so many cases plead guilty and we don't have a lot of trials. This is obviously a biggie, and she's going to get a lot of experience very fast. But again, I. I'm not sure that's a great criticism of her. What is she supposed to do? She can't force cases to go to trial, and she's only had 200 so odd, uh, some odd cases. So, so yeah, uh, very few have gone to trial. I want to talk about another aspect of this case, which is the piercing of lawyer-client uh, confidentiality. Evan Corcoran, Trump lawyer, was compelled to turn over evidence that the prosecution says shows that uh, Donald Trump was conspiring to break the law. I have a number. Sorry, am I saying? Do you, you want to? You have it. You have it right. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I, I was chomping out the bit because it's so outrageous to me. I have to say um, that that they were able to pierce the attorney-client privilege, and and I have to also say. My progressive friends that are all happy about this and, and cheering, ah, oh, we got the lawyer. It's bad because this is setting precedent in other cases. And when I meet with a client now who's sitting across the desk from me, I don't want them thinking, man, if I say the wrong thing or I text the wrong thing to Marcus or I email the wrong thing, he's going to be turning that over to the prosecutor. That's crazy. Um, and so to me that this happened before a case was even filed, um, sort of under seal and in secret, I don't believe that's right. And I think it should be relitigated. And I hope um, uh, judges take a very close look at this because it's bad for uh, the attorney-client privilege and bad for our business. Okay, I want to press you on that. Um, first of all, my compliments to you for intellectual consistency. You are uh, a good trial lawyer who is 
defending, as you are wont to do, your, uh, your guild, your industry, this shouldn't happen, no matter what you think the outcome of this case should be and how you voted. I will, I will stipulate that. But don't, wouldn't you agree that there is some point, there is some point where a client could conspire to such an outrageous degree with their lawyer that it is a crime that is occurring or would be occurring if the lawyer were to countenance that. It's of, not like this should be an absolute right, correct? Of course. And, and yeah. you know, the, no, no question about it. And, and I will say this about consistency. So just so you know, I mean, I'm a liberal Democrat who represents Hillary Clinton in her case against Trump right now. So, so yes. but, but I, do think, I do think these first principles are important because once you start to, to move the line, they get moved in all cases. So, okay, but that is my question. If, it is, if there are some cases where lawyer-client confidentiality needs to be pierced, why in this case did it fall not just short, but so short of that? You cited the practical effect on you and other defense lawyers. I got that. But what about the specifics of this case, as you understand it, doesn't warrant that piercing? So what I understand, and again, this has been under seal, this is just what's been reported, is Cochran, after he meets with Trump, starts giving voice memos about the meetings, and they get those voice memos. To me, those are his impressions of an attorney-client meeting. It's different, of course, like in the 80s when lawyers down in Miami were prosecuted for conspiring to bribe witnesses with their client, right? Like the big drug dealers would say, here's 100000 in cash, go give 50 of it to the witness to stay quiet and you keep 50 for you. I mean, who who would defend that? No, you indict the lawyer, you get those conversations. That's not an attorney-client meeting. That's a conspiracy to commit a crime. Here, um, it's much closer, and we need to get the facts, of course, but if the lawyer meets with a client and then makes a memo about his impressions of the meeting, what he thought about the meeting, to me, that, that sounds like an attorney-client, uh, those are attorney-client notes and not a conspiracy to commit a crime. So, you know, I think we need to be careful. And and I also, look, I, I haven't, this is all under seal. We're, the order is going to get unsealed soon. But when I saw that, it, that they were getting memos of the lawyer, that's what made my um, made me a concerned. Would, did the lawyer misstep? Would a certain type of defense lawyer never have done that? Like I'm thinking of a mafia or alleged mafia lawyer. Yeah, I, I have to say also, you, you make a good point. Like I've never made a voice memo of a uh, meeting with a client. And I take very few notes, not for that reason. I just like to be engaged with the client when I meet with him or her and, and speak. I'm not like writing down now. My associates are probably writing down. So, so uh, you know, again, uh, but but yeah, it is it is um, interesting that they took notes with impressions of the meeting with the client. That seemed like a kind of a CYA kind of thing, maybe. Mm-hmm. Is, can you pick up, I don't know if you know Evan Corcoran um, and, or, or free to give your full impressions, but did you pick up any hint that he either really fought it, cooperated with it, did what he needed to do, but didn't do any extra to help the government? You know, what's your assessment of him being asked to do this very rare and, as you point out, troubling for the defense community thing to sort of sing about his client? Yeah. um, You know, hopefully he was just singing and not composing. You know, the problem is... Again, we don't know enough. All we know is sort of what's been leaked and reported. What we do know, and and so maybe this is why he was doing the memos, is that Trump has has gone through a lot of lawyers, right? And and lots of lawyers have, uh, like Michael Cohen, have been sort of burned through the process. So, so you know, perhaps that's why he was doing those sorts of memos. Um, he wanted to protect himself. 
But if you're going to get involved in a case like this, you got to go in with your eyes open um, and understand. And so, you know, that's it's another troubling thing. I don't know enough about the facts to tell you, you know, he, he shouldn't have done it or he fought hard enough. And um, I think that's going to all be coming out pretty soon when this all gets relitigated. Yeah. And so the indictment has some quotes, I guess we could say they're quotes. If they put it in the indictment, they can't be misrepresenting them. And they quote Trump attorney one, I think this is Corcoran saying, I don't want any uh, Trump in some in substance made the following statements. Wouldn't it be better if we just told them we don't have anything here? Well, look, isn't it better if there are no documents? Well, what if we, what happens if we just don't respond at all or don't play ball with them? Um, And I don't want anybody looking. I don't want anybody looking through my boxes. I really don't. I don't want you looking through my boxes. To me, I'm not the defense lawyer you are, but these are all natural things that someone might ask their attorney, right? Well, do we have to do this? Isn't it better if they don't look through this? Those are the natural sorts of things even an innocent party might ask, right? A hundred percent, Mike. And I think what you're going to see as the defense is that Trump was asking these questions and got advice. I mean, it's been reported in the Washington Post that he got advice from like the head of Judicial Watch or something like this. And whether or not you agree with the the advice, if he's being told these are your documents and you can keep them, he's going to go to trial and say, I acted in good faith. They have to prove he willfully and intentionally violated the law. Well, if somebody's telling him, perhaps his lawyer, who knows that, no, these are your documents under the Presidential Records Act. Again, whether we agree or disagree with the advice, if you if you rely on it, that's a complete defense if you act in good faith. In fact, it's you don't have to prove good faith. The government has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that you acted in bad faith, which is really hard to do. Right, right. Uh, usually acting in bad faith relies on establishing what the mindset is, the mens rea. In this case, it's a little different. He does provide... Uh, more of a glimpse into his mindset than many criminal defendants will, and not just in what I quoted to you, but in the tape they say they have of him talking to a couple of writers and waving around a document. But talk me through, that's in the indictment, and right now it's in the media that they have uh, the lawyer talking about, wouldn't it be good if this problem just went away? What's the mechanism to exclude that from a trial? How would that happen? Well, you know, it already got litigated about piercing the the privilege. I think they will try to relitigate that in front of Judge Cannon. And that's what I think um, some of the progressive stuff that you've been reading is all nervous about, that she issues a ruling saying you can't use that, that that was privileged. Yeah. And but you're the saying gu- that's not, that wouldn't be an outrageous ruling. It wouldn't. Yeah. Um, but everybody will freak out about it and say yeah. bias and accuse the judge of some bad things. The judge is in a tough spot, of course, because if she... If she rules for Trump, she's going to be called biased. If she rules against Trump, they're going to say she's trying to look fair. I mean, she's, you know, this is a this is not a, a, a easy or winnable case for the judge. She's in a she's in an impossible position. So she's going to have to just really close out all the media, rely on her law clerks, and and try to do the right thing. It's going to be tough. We will be back after a break with David Marcus to talk timelines and what about Walt, Trump co-defendant Waltine Nauta. Stay tuned. So as a de- from your trained eye and from your experience as a defense lawyer, when you read the indictment, what jumps out? 
to you as being a very difficult thing to combat. Uh, other lawyers, like William Barr, who was, in fact, the attorney general, said, you know, if what they're saying in the indictment is true, he's toast. I'm sure there are a lot of indictments that if it's all true, the guy would be toast. That's a point of uh, indictments or charging documents. But what is really should really be concerning to the Trump defense team? Well, I think, you know, what you what we've been talking about, the, the attorney client privilege stuff is really bad. The journalist stuff is bad. But let me let me switch it a little bit. I think the charge of Nauda, the the co-defendant, is really wrong. I mean, you're charging the president of the United States, right, with keeping these documents. You're going to charge his body man with with assisting him. It just seems like a tactic to squeeze, to pressure. Um, Here's a guy who's been in the military for 20 years, Mike, and the former commander in chief tells him, move boxes from here to here. There's nobody in the world in that position is going to say, you know what, um, boss, I'm not going to do that. It, it reminded me of uh, a few good men, like the Code Red. Like, you ordered the Code Red. Uh, you know, these guys are going to do what they're told but to do. In this case, the Code Red is moving a box. <laughs> it, 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 that, that's right. That, that's right. Um, and so what? What This this 20-year military guy um, who's working as an aide to the former president, former commander-in-chief is going to say No. I really think a South Florida jury, really any jury, is going to say, sorry, um, he's not guilty. So I think he's got a really good defense. People are saying he's going to flip, he's going to plead. Um, I, I don't see that. Um, I think he had the opportunity to do it, and he basically said no. At this point, I think he goes all the way. Yeah. Would he be able to, would his legal defense fund be able to be funded by anyone? Are there any restrictions on that? Yeah, there's been a lot of talk about this, too. I don't see why um, he couldn't be paid by the same political action committee. Um, you know, he was employed by the former president. So um, what about if Donald Cody, Trump just funds his defense without any pretense or pretext? I don't think there's any problem with that. The prosecutors will get all twisted about it and they'll file a motion saying, you know, we'd like to have a hearing about it. We'd like to know the basis of the legal fees. That's happened with us before. And you know, we've taken the position prosecutors have no ba- right to know the legal fees, uh, who's paying them. And second of all, what what we lawyers do when, you know, for example, companies will pay for the legal fees of employees all the time and there'll be an argument that's a conflict. But as long as the lawyers make clear, I'm going to do what's best for my client and it doesn't matter that somebody else is paying the legal fees, the lawyer is protected. And and that will have to be made clear to Nauta that that whoever he has as his lawyer is going to represent him and not worry about Trump. Last question. Give me a sense of knowing this district and schedules of the timing. When might we see important events in the trial? Everybody is up here saying this trial is going to happen quickly and before the election. It's never going to happen. This trial will never happen before November 2024. It's impossible. So first of all, if this was a regular old gun case, like a two-day trial, felon in possession, it would take five or six months to get to trial. You have to get the discovery, which is the evidence in the case. You have to file the motions. You have to get all, everybody's calendar schedule. You know, you have stuff planned out. This is one of the this is the biggest case in this district's history. And this district has had a lot of big cases. Noriega, the Cali cartel, other. It's going to you have to get the lawyers cleared under the Classified Information Act. There, there's going to be litigation over the attorney client privilege. There may be appeals um, it, the trial is expected to last more than a month. You have to get that cleared with all the lawyer schedules and the judge's schedule. The judge isn't going to have it in the fall of 2024, right before the election. 
It's going to get continued as it should. The prosecutor had over a year to prepare their case. The defense doesn't even have a new lawyer yet. Those lawyers are going to need time to prepare. So, Mike, I'm telling you, people are saying this case should be tried before the election. It will not be tried before the election. Okay, I appreciate your clarity on that. And I assume, I didn't ask you this, and that's uh, to my detriment, but the idea that Judge Cannon is going to be recused or recuse herself. I hear some wish casting on this, but I think the people who actually practice before the federal bar say no way. Do you agree? No way she's getting recused. No way on a motion does does she get recused. And I don't even think DOJ is going to file it because there's no basis. The fact that they ruled against them before is not a basis to recuse her. Now, I could see her on her own saying, I don't want any piece of this. I'm going to get out and recuse. But I think she would have done that already. So I think immediately when it was filed, if she wanted out, she could have recused. She hasn't done it. So she's not going to recuse herself. And DOJ, if they wanted to recuse her, they would have had to file something quickly and they haven't done it. So I think, again, wish casting is a perfect way to put it. And I think that's exactly what uh, the Trump enemies are, are hoping for, but they're not going to get it. David Oscar Marcus runs the Southern District of Florida blog, and the podcast is named for the defense and more to the point. He's in courts all the time as one of the nation's top defense lawyers. David, great to talk to you. Great to talk to you. Go Emory Eagles. Yes. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the COO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Peru, Peru, and thanks for listening. 